All right, well, let me tell you what we're uh, doing. This semester, we have been studying the doctrine of the last things or the end times, what is known as eschatology. Eschaton in Greek means last, and so we've been studying eschatology. We have talked about things such as apocalyptic literature, how to read the book of Revelation, etc. And over the last few weeks, we've actually been talking about the eternal state. What does it look like if somebody is lost for eternity, what is called eternal condemnation? And that was a fun lesson. We all left here very uh, encouraged and cheerful, and uh, I think it was even raining that day, which made it even better. And, uh, and then last week, Jeff talked about uh, eternal life. What does it look like to be resurrected? New heavens, new earth, uh, no more pain, no more crying, no more weeping. All the sad things will one day become untrue because of Christ, which is encouraging and good news. And today, though, we're actually uh, still talking about this topic, but we're going to approach it from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to look at the ideas of heaven and hell throughout church history. Now, why do we do that? Because the Bible, and the Bible alone is inspired by God, why do we look at church history to see what other people think? Who cares? Well, the reason that we do that is because it helps us check our theology against millions of spirit-inspired believers throughout 2,000 years. It's, it's a good way that we question our presuppositions, that we don't read what we think back onto the text. We look at what other people think, and when it seems weird to us, we have to ask, who actually is holding the weird view? Is it them or is it us? And we just think their view is weird because we hold our own view. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about heaven and hell in church history. Now, uh, as a recap, you need to understand, we've mentioned this in uh, both lessons, the terms heaven and hell kind of get confused, okay? So there's a sense in which we can talk about heaven and hell for what happens to you right after you die. In that sense, heaven and hell is a waiting room. Some waiting rooms, like a governmental clinic, are dark and they're scary and they, uh, they look really gross. But then other fancy doctor's offices have a nice waiting room, okay? That's kind of heaven and hell right after you die. There's kind of this waiting room away from Christ if you don't know Christ, or there is resting with Christ. To be absent, with the body is to be, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul will say. But that's not the end of the story. We have a tendency just to stop there. We have a tendency to think that when you die, you go to heaven or hell, end of story, there's no judgment, no resurrection, whatever, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, you will wait for judgment either with Christ or away from him, but there will be a day where you are raised and you will be judged. And then there's what we typically think of as heaven and hell. There's new and improved heaven, i.e. the new heavens and new earth. Or there's, like I like to say, new and improved hell, i.e. the lake of fire. And so uh, again, all very encouraging. So that's what we've talked about over the last two weeks. Now let me give you one more thing before we talk about heaven and hell. It's never fun to talk about hell. So let me give you just three things that I said when we did talk about eternal condemnation, okay? The first is this. We need to always proudly proclaim what God's word says. We don't need to be ashamed of God's word. We don't need to be ashamed of the Bible. God is not ashamed of the Bible, okay? If we're embarrassed or we don't like something in God's word, the problem is always with us. It's not with the Bible, okay? The second thing is if you are a Christian, you know Christ, hell is not a reality for you. This is not something you have to fear anymore. This is something where your debt has been paid, your punishment has been taken by Christ. You get to rest you get to enjoy not only God's presence now and a sense of joy now, but for all eternity, you get to enjoy our Trinitarian God with no weeping, no crying, no pain. So if you're a Christian and we start talking about hell and you're like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable, don't, it doesn't apply to you, okay? The, the only people that it would actually bother don't care about it. And so you need to know that. The last thing is, and we talked about this when we talked about condemnation, the reason we as Christians don't need to shy away from the idea of hell is because it lets you know how much God loves you and that he has saved you from it. You don't really know God's grace until you realize what he has saved you from. That God would send Christ to redeem his enemies while we're still his enemies and not just rescue us from ourselves, but rescue us from eternal condemnation means that God's love for you is just beyond what you can even fathom, okay? I don't, I don't, give, up, I don't give up my son for anyone, especially not my enemy who will continue being disobedient, okay? And so the fact that, uh, that God has given up Christ for our uh, redemption is just incredible love. And so you need to understand when you minimize hell, you also minimize God's gift. You minimize his grace. We talked about this uh, uh, when we talked about hell, that there's this parable that Jesus tells and he asks, there's this guy and two people owe this guy a debt. One guy owes him a bunch of money. One guy just owes him a little bit of money and he cancels the debt of both. Who will love him more? And the answer is the one that had the bigger debt canceled. So the more you realize how big your debt was, 
the more you realize how bad your sin was and my sin was, and then realize that God has forgiven that, it lets you love him more, it causes you to love him more, you see his grace more. So that's my uh, encouraging pastoral uh, beginning. Then we get into some weird and difficult things, okay? So let's talk about the traditional view of judgment, eternal life, and eternal condemnation throughout church history. So we're going to look at it in the early church, the medieval church, the Reformation church, and then in the modern church, okay? So uh, first of all, let me read you this definition. This comes from what's called the Athanasian Creed, lines 40 through 43. It says this, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and will give account for their own works. Those who have done good will go into eternal life, and those who have done evil will go into eternal fire, okay? So here's something uh, that at least uh, you can be encouraged in in the early church. They just kind of say it. They just say it. They're not dancing around it. They're not using a lot of flowery language. They just tell you exactly what they think is going to happen in these short, succinct creeds, and, uh, and we see that here. So let's look at some things to know about heaven and hell in the early church, okay? Number one, they believed everyone, Christian and non-Christian, would have to go through a judgment process. Okay? Do you understand that, that we will all give an account before Christ for all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad? This is true of believers and non-believers. Now, let me explain what that process is. It's not as though you're standing in line wondering what your verdict will be. Okay? Like you're wringing your hands and you're like, oh man, there was that one time when I was in college. where I did. That's not what it's like. Okay? Rather, you already know where you're going. You know where you're going now. You can know that you have eternal life now. We'll see that when we get into 1 John 5, okay, that we today as Christians know that we have eternal life, so we don't go through judgment wondering what the result will be. The reason that we go through judgment is our works demonstrate whether or not we've had faith in Christ. You are not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ alone. Yes and amen. You receive Christ through faith alone. Yes and amen. Why does the Bible talk about judging us according to our works? Because our works are the evidence, not the grounds, but the evidence of our salvation. It shows whether or not we've been regenerated. If we've been transformed by the Spirit, it, our lives look different than they used to look, okay? So let me give you a little example. Imagine that there was this concert that you really wanted to go to, and you had authentic tickets to that concert, okay? You know that there are tickets. You bought them at the ticket office. They've got all the right emblems. They've got the right barcode. They're legitimate tickets, But then you also hear that a bunch of people have been forging these tickets. A bunch of people have been uh, like printing them off and trying to act like they're authentic concert tickets so they can get into the concert as well. So then imagine that it's the day of the concert and everyone is standing outside of the gates. But what they have is they have a way of telling whose tickets are real and whose are fake. Everyone gets tested. Everybody gets their ticket scanned. You have nothing to worry about. You know that you've bought your ticket legally. You know that you have your ticket. You have the receipt. It's a real ticket. You're getting into the concert. The person, though, that has the fake ticket, they know that. And as they're awaiting their ticket getting scanned, they're a little bit nervous. Maybe they'll find out that uh, their ticket is fake and they don't get to get into the concert. That's more of the idea of judgment in the New Testament, that we are judged not because our works save us, not because we don't know where we're going, but rather because our works evidence our faith. Our works show whether or not we've ever had saving faith in Christ to begin with. Again, your works are the evidence, not the ground or basis of your salvation, which is faith in Christ alone, okay? Number two, this is not a big uh, point of contention. They believed in eternal blessings for Christians. That's what we believe today. They've believed that throughout church history, okay? What you'll see throughout church history is sometimes people want to question the doctrine of hell. They have a tendency not to question that uh, God really loves us and he's going to save us and these kind of things if we're Christians. We, we do that, by the way, as humans. Let me just say it this way. Uh, if you go to the doctor and he gives you a bad diagnosis, you might seek a second opinion, yes? How many times do you seek a second opinion when the doctor gives you a good diagnosis? You don't, right? You just want it to be true. So, so throughout church, they've done a good job of believing there's eternal blessings for those who are Christians. What they have a tendency sometimes to skirt on is the idea of hell. Number three, they believed that everyone would be bodily resurrected. Now, this is super important. We have a tendency. So as a kid, when I was watching a cartoon like Tom and Jerry, one of them would get like smashed with a hammer or something and they would become an angel, right? They would instantly become an angel and float up to heaven and be up on a cloud playing a harp or something like that. That is not a biblical view of salvation. You don't become an angel. You remain a human. Jesus didn't die for angels, okay? Additionally, the Bible teaches that you will be bodily resurrected. God's plan when mankind sinned. So God creates everything, Adam and Eve sinned. God's plan was not 
well, let me just scrap this entire physical universe I just spent all this time making and just go with plan B. That wasn't the goal. The goal is that God is redeeming the world. The goal is that he's redeeming us, not just our souls, but our bodies. The hope has always been that we will be resurrected like Christ was. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So the eternal state will be us being resurrected. We will be in resurrected physical bodies like Jesus. We will be our same gender. We will be our same race. Jesus did not come back as a, uh, an Asian woman. He came back as a Jewish man, right? So he, re- he retained his, uh, his gender, his race, his body, etc. And, uh, and so will we. Number four. Now there was debate in the early church on whether the new heavens and new earth would be a renewed heavens and earth or, and this is my language, they don't use this term, a brand spanking new heavens and earth, okay? So the Bible teaches there'll be a new heavens and new earth, so there's some debate. Does that mean that God completely destroys everything and goes with plan B, creates a brand new one, or is it new in the sense that it's renewed? And I take it that way. That's how a lot of people in the early church take it, though there is some debate. I take it as new, meaning new in quality, new in the sense that it's uh, fixed, that God purges it as through fire, as Peter will say. But in the same way that when we're resurrected, we're still us, but we're a new us, the world will still be the world, but a new world, where the uh, wolf lies down with the lamb and not where it tries to eat the lamb, okay? Uh, Number five, There was the idea that there would be two resurrections separated by a millennium. Now, here's something you need to understand. The early church was predominantly pre-millennial, okay? If you don't know what that term is, hang on, because we're going to have three lessons in a row where we talk about what is pre, post, and all-millennialism, okay? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just keep coming to the class. We'll get to it. Basically, it deals with this. In Revelation 20, it talks about this thousand-year reign of Christ. What are we supposed to do with that? Okay, that's really the question. What does that mean? And so we're going to have three lessons on a, in a row on this topic. You'll even get to hear from our very own Jared Lawson, who is a millennial, which, uh, which works uh, for talking about this, uh, talking about this topic. Uh, and so uh, hang on. But you need to know that the early church was predominantly premillennial. What that, what that means is they believe that Christ would come back, reign on the earth for a thousand years, and then the final state would come. Okay, that there's this kind of pre-reign of Christ before his final reign. That's what a lot in the early church believe. That's why it's called historic premillennialism, because it's uh, been held in the early church. Number six, they believed, and this one's tough. We talked about this in our uh, hell lesson. They believed the experience of pain in hell is eternal. Okay, let me give you a few quotes from early church leaders. The damned, see, they're just so aggressive with their language. They just say it. They're, uh, there's not a whole lot of PC throughout church history. That's kind of a modern, kind of American notion. But the damned will burn forever in hell. Somebody tweet that out. Uh, devouring flames will be their eternal portion. Their torments will never decrease or end. Their lamentations will be vain and their entreaties ineffective. Now listen to this next line because this is pretty creative. Their repentance comes too late. They will have to believe in an eternal punishment as they refuse to believe in eternal life. I'm St. Cyprian there. Uh, next, we have this. Athenagoras says, God has not made a sheep or beast of burden a mere byproduct and that we should perish and be annihilated. There's this idea in the early church that humans are not like other creatures that God has made that he just destroys, but rather we have this enduring quality about us and that God continues to keep us existing, whether in condemnation or in uh, eternal life. Uh, The Synod of Constantinople in 543 explicitly uh, condemns what is called annihilationism. If anyone says or thinks that the punishment of demons and of wicked people is only temporary and will one day have an end, or that the restoration will take place of demons and of wicked people, let him be anathema. Okay? Now, that's the kind of standard view in the early church, that you will die, you will be resurrected, and you will either live with Christ, new heavens, new earth, or there will be condemnation. Okay, Jesus talks about don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay? And so uh, there's this idea that the eternal state is bodily. But there are a few outliers. Okay? I want to mention one in particular. There is a guy named Origen. There's an early church leader. His name is Origen, uh, spelled E-N, Origen. And uh, he's a major influence on a lot of other thinkers. Later people in church history will look back on him, though, and say some of his views were other than orthodox. Okay, so he's good on some things, but he's off on other things. But because he writes before all of the councils and stuff, he's not technically considered a heretic because he didn't know. Not knowing true doctrine is different than explicitly denying it after the doctrine has been uh, uh, kind of settled. But uh, Origen, he was an interesting guy. He, uh, 
he wanted to go be a, a martyr. Okay, so there were all these Christians that were being killed, and Origen wanted to become a martyr, uh, but his mom didn't want him to, so she hid all his clothes so that he couldn't go become a martyr, okay? So more than wanting to become a martyr, he didn't want to be naked. Uh, He, at one point, castrated himself because the Bible's very clear that some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, that it is better to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand than to uh, wallow in sin. And so he uh, uh, emasculated himself uh, only to find out that he still lusted because lust is a condition of the heart, not a condition uh, of the body. Uh, He thought that when we were resurrected, we would all be big circles. Why? Because a circle is a perfect shape and our resurrected bodies would be perfect. Okay? Kind of a weird guy, not the kind of guy you'd invite to a party today, uh, but he had a view in the early church, which uh, the church eventually would condemn, and it's, the, it's what's called apocatastasis. Okay? What is apocatastasis? The idea is that Christ would eventually redeem everyone, even in hell. Okay? That God, it's kind of, a, kind of a love wins, kind of Rob Bell kind of idea that God's grace and power is so much that not only does he redeem Christians, but eventually he would redeem everyone, everyone in hell, including the devil. The devil would be saved in origin system. And uh, the early church said that that is not what the Bible teaches. Whatever the Bible teaches when it comes to the end state, it's not that the fates of those who know Christ and the fates of those who don't are the same. Okay? It's certainly not that. Uh, His position was condemned in the year 400 AD. Okay, number seven. They believed there would be varying degrees of reward and punishment. Now, this is interesting. We talked a little bit about this in the Q&A last class. There's two kind of ideas when it comes to this question. Do some believers get more reward in heaven than others? Or you could ask it conversely. Are there some people in hell who have a worse experience in hell, whatever that means, right? Like a really bad hell opposed to okay hell. Uh, there, there's, or is everyone's fate the same? One theological position says everyone's fate is the same. If you are in, if you're in heaven, if you know Christ, your joy is the same as everyone else's joy. There's no reason to compete over who has a bigger mansion, over who has a, a bigger boat, over who has more joy. It's all the same. When Jesus says, great will be your reward in heaven, he doesn't mean in comparison to someone else in heaven. He means in comparison to the things you will have on this earth. That's the idea. Others would say that uh, the same thing is true regarding hell. Is it that everybody in hell is experiencing the same amount of torment, or is it that Hitler is going through something worse than your kind Buddhist neighbor? who has uh, helped the little old ladies across the street and these kind of things. Well, the, uh, there's debate on that throughout church history. A lot of those in the early church held, though, that there are varying degrees of reward or punishment, okay? That you as a Christian could, in a sense, have a higher capacity for experiencing God's joy than another Christian. Now, if you're in, you're in. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong, right? If you're not in hell, if you're in heaven, things are great. You're doing great. You've made it. Okay? But the question is, are there varying degrees of reward in heaven? Does somebody like uh, Peter or somebody like Augustine have more reward than somebody like Tim Hollis, right? Uh, and so this is, this is kind of the question. And so uh, the, a lot of those in the early church held that the answer to that question was yes, and uh, part of it is because of St. Augustine's influence, but here's what he says. By the way, just as a quick note, uh, Jeff pointed this out, I think this is helpful. When we sometimes say in sermons, saint somebody, that's just a moniker for that person's name. The Bible teaches that all Christians are saints. I don't want you to think that the Roman Catholic idea of like Saint Teresa that you pray to for your sins or anything like that. So that's not what we mean when we say saint. We just add that because sometimes it brings clarity. If I quote from Saint Anthony, I can't put up a quote and just say, Tony. You don't know who that is, right? I have to say this as as kind of a, a title so you understand. So keep that in mind. So Saint Augustine says this, but the former, the saved, shall live truly and happily in eternal life. The latter, the lost, this is in context there, shall drag a miserable existence in eternal death without the power of dying. Notice, never in the Bible does death, destruction, anything ever mean take out of existence. That's never what it means in the Bible. That's a modern notion. I can't think of any time in the Bible where God ever takes anything out of existence, right? So when Jesus dies, he doesn't cease to exist. He just dies. When a city is destroyed, the city doesn't cease to be. It just, it's a transfer of matter. It's just now rocks on the ground because the city's been destroyed. So notice this phrase, eternal death without the power of dying. For both shall be without end. But among the former, there shall be degrees of happiness, one being more preeminently happy than another. And among the latter, there shall be degrees of misery, one being more endurably miserable than another. 
okay? So that idea will hang on throughout church history. Most in church history have believed that there are varying degrees of reward uh, in heaven and varying degrees of punishment in hell. I don't know that that's right biblically, but that is a pretty popular view, okay? Next, the the medieval period. Some things to know about heaven and hell in the medieval church, okay? Number one, they essentially held the same views as the early church, except they believed there would be only one resurrection instead of two. Everyone would be raised at the same time. The medieval church was primarily amillennial, okay? Again, if you don't know what that term is, just hang on to that note, okay? The early church is premillennial from Augustine through the reformers. So for most of church history, they're amillennial, and then postmillennialism comes around the 1700s and such, and, uh, but that's what uh, we'll see later on when we talk about the millennium, what that means. Now, number two, this one's fascinating. You'll notice that you have printed in color. Whoa, you're welcome, okay? We got a new contract on our printer, and we can print in color. Woo-hoo. So, uh, so you'll notice this. There was a flourishing in the arts during the Middle Ages regarding the idea of the final judgment. This heavily influenced the average person's understanding of the final judgment. Okay, remember this. A, f- a few things. First of all, the Middle Ages are not the Dark Ages, You might have heard that. You might think the Middle Ages where everyone's dying of plague and nobody's smart and everything is really awful, okay? Kind of Monty Python style. That is not the case, okay? You know who calls it the Dark Ages? You know where it gets that term? Guys coming out of the Enlightenment, these kind of pretentious philosophical guys that look back on Christian history and say the Dark Ages. During the Middle Ages, there is a tremendous flourishing of the arts, of literature, of philosophy. You have the invention of the university. Universities didn't exist to the Middle Ages, okay? So if you wanna talk about academic achievement, universities were invented during the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, you see figures like, because the Middle Ages is such a big period, you see figures like Augustine and Boethius, you see figures like Anselm, Aquinas, Chaucer, Dante, Michelangelo, etc. It is a period of tremendous flourishing. It is not the Dark Ages. That is a later title that uh, moderns attach to it because they're trying to move on past all that superstitious, dumb Christianity stuff and just get into human reason, okay? That's kind of the idea. But what you have to understand is in the Middle Ages, if you're a Christian, how do you learn about the Bible? Well, Zach, you go to church. Nope, all the services are in Latin. You don't speak Latin, so you don't get to learn about the Bible. Well, you'll just read your own Bible. You don't have your own Bible. It's not written in the vernacular, and you're illiterate, okay? It's something like 90% of people were illiterate during the Middle Ages, most people, It's something like 99% of women, right? So the men are not doing much better than the women, even in the Middle Ages. You can't read. You don't have a Bible. You don't have a Bible in your own language. How on earth are you supposed to learn about the Bible? Through artwork. The churches have this very fabulous-looking stained glass. Why? So you can learn the Bible via picture book, okay? You can't read the Bible, you can't understand the sermon, but you can walk into the uh, cathedral and you can see the picture of the Good Samaritan, you can see the crucifixion, you can see Moses parting the sea or whatever it might be, and that's how you learn about the Bible. You also see it through artwork, okay? You see it through artwork. So I've included some here for you. First, let's look at Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. I want you to notice this within this painting. There's a lot we could talk about. I'm not an art historian, but I want you to see one thing here. In the Middle Ages, there was this big theme of upward ascension to God and salvation or downward descension into condemnation. So you'll realize there's a lot of busy things going on here, but as you get higher in the picture, things get holier. You start getting into saints and angels and these kind of things. As you get lower into the picture, if you look at the bottom right-hand corner, you see a, kind of this demon on this boat about to whack the guy with an oar, and you see people tied up with snakes, and they're going into hell and these kind of things. This is what you would have seen in different pieces of art in the Middle Ages. This is what would inform your view of judgment, Okay. So if you're thinking of hell, you're thinking, oh man, this guy is going to take me on this boat and I'm going to be wrapped up and thrown in fire, whatever it is. Or when you think of salvation, you think of yourself kind of nakedly uh, floating up into the clouds or something like this. But what's going to inform your thinking about heaven and hell uh, is the arts, if you even have access to see some of those. You get to see them in churches, that's about it, okay? Other than that, you go back and you farm and you die of the plague, okay? So... Again, when people ask, what period of uh, history would you like to live in? The answer is nothing before today, okay? I like, you know, using anesthesia when I have dentistry work done. Uh, Amen, Dr. Steve. And I like having, uh, uh, you know, I like having medicine I can take. I like that I get a blister and don't die. This is a great time to be alive, okay? 
another thing that really influences the view of heaven and hell is Dante. Dante Alighieri's very famous uh, multi-part work in the Divine Comedy. Okay? In Dante's Inferno, he describes hell as having nine levels or what is called nine circles. You might have heard somebody joke that they're in the, the ninth circle of hell because they have to stay late at work or something like this. Here is, uh, here is Dante's Inferno. Here are the different levels. He has nine circles of hell. Uh, and so here are the different levels. Here's what happens at each one. Again, this is not something, I need to, everybody look at me, this is not something the Bible teaches. I'm just giving you some history here, okay? And so please don't think, okay, I think, well, I struggle with greed, so I'm going to go the fourth level of hell. No, that's not, okay. First of all, in the first level of hell, it includes moral pagans and unbaptized Christians. It's basically limbo, okay? It's not really hell, but people wander around in loneliness, okay? Loneliness. That's also where, uh, where a lot of philosophers are. So there was this view that though philosophers aren't Christians, they're not saved, they're very close to the truth, okay? Plato's idea of the one in being is very close to the idea of God in, uh, in Christianity, and so they don't have such a bad punishment. If you're a scoundrel, you get a big punishment, but at least if you're a smart pagan, your punishment's a little less, okay? Number two, lust. People are blown in a continual windstorm. So there you go. That's not that bad. We live in Texas, right? That's like every spring. So it's just spring in Texas where it's tornado-y forever, uh, number three, gluttony. People are freezing in a continual icy rain. Again, if you're somebody who doesn't know the Bible and you're illiterate, but somebody has read to you portions from Dante, this is going to affect the way you think about heaven and hell. Uh, number four, greed. People are forced to push big boulders around. Okay. Number five, anger. People are engaged in an endless battle in a swamp. That's no fun. Right? If you want to engage in a battle, you don't want to be all bogged down by all that mush and stuff in a swamp. Okay? Number six, heresy. Now, this is fascinating. This is true even in the Reformed tradition. Heresy and spiritual sins against God are seen as worse than temporary sins that you commit with your body or something like that. So I think that's interesting. But heresy, people are burned forever in stone coffins. Now we're starting to get into really what we think of when we think of hell. Okay? The idea of burning and pain and torment. Number seven, violence, meaning unrighteous violence. The church universally accepted uh, just war theory. Unrighteous violence. People are made to drown in a lake of boiling blood. Whoa. Somebody make that on your uh, Halloween decorations for your front lawn. Uh, number eight, fraud. For some reason, fraud's really bad. People are endlessly tortured by being beaten by demons. Okay? And then number nine, treachery, more, better, probably better translated as treason, is a vast frozen lake where the devil resides with the worst of sinners, including Judas. So he thought Judas would be in the ninth uh, circle of hell. Now, a lot of these are based on Dante's view of the seven deadly sins. You ever heard the phrase, the seven deadly sins? That doesn't come from the Bible. In Proverbs, it talks about there are six things that God hates, seven that he abhors, but his list is not the same as Dante's list, okay? What Dante does is he takes these particular sins that were already a theme in the Middle Ages, and he promotes them. But here are the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth, okay? Next, I want to read to you a passage from John Milton's Paradise Lost. Now, if you're saying, Zach, John Milton is not a middle age, uh, a figure in the Middle Ages, I'm fully aware of that. He writes in what's called the Baroque period. But his conception of heaven and hell is very similar to what they thought in the Middle Ages, which is why I'm giving you that. And so let me read this passage. This is when Satan first shows up and sees hell for the first time. Here's what he says. At once as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation waste and wild. A dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible. Notice that it's both, there's flames and fire, but it's dark, because the Bible affirms both of those things. Severed only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell. Hope never comes. That comes to all, but torture without end still urges, and a fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. Such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious, here their prison ordained, in utter darkness and their portion set, as far removed from God and light of heaven, as from the center thrice to the utmost pole. Oh, how unlike the first place from whence they fell. Okay? That's kind of the idea and the image that you get uh, going on in the Middle Ages. So when John Milton is writing Paradise Lost, these are the kind of images that he's drawing on, which would have been uh, popular to his audience. Okay? And the last thing to know before we move on to the Reformation, they promoted sacramental theology for salvation. What does that mean? Let's back up to Augustine. Who's Augustine? Somebody give me just a brief recap of Augustine. 
Anybody? Anybody at all? We've only mentioned him every lesson we've ever done in theological equipping. He's a good guy. We like Augustine, okay? He is the most influential Christian figure outside of the Bible, okay? Is Augustine of Hippo, Aurelius Augustinus. He solves the problem of evil. He defends salvation by grace alone. He spends something like 20 years studying the doctrine of the Trinity before he writes De Trinitate. He is a good guy, okay? He's a major, major figure. He is the George Washington of church history or something like that, okay? The Jedi Master, SEAL Team 6 Commando of church history. And uh, there's a debate that he has going on in the early church with a guy named Donatus, okay? Here's what's going on. Let's say you're a Christian and the Romans come to persecute you and you betray Christ. You turn over your copy of the scriptures to be burned. You bow down on one knee and say, hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. You do something unfaithful to Christ. And then you want to get back into the church, okay? And now let's assume that you are a priest. You're some type of minister. So you've betrayed Christ and you're a minister. The people you baptized, are they invalidly baptized because you denied the faith? Okay? What happens is you start to get this split going on in the early church. It's Augustine who will say, the priest's faith is not what's relevant for the sacraments. It's Christ's promise that's relevant for the sacraments. And because of Augustine, the sacraments, meaning things like baptism and penance and confirmation and these kind of things that the church would later uh, add to the Bible, I would say, because there's only two sacraments biblically, communion and baptism, uh, they start taking on almost this magical character where they work even if the person doesn't have any faith, okay? Even if the person doesn't have any faith. You get that idea that is really blown up in the Middle Ages, Okay. So let's say I go up to a friend of mine who's a Catholic priest who I think is walking in unrepentant sin. And I go up to him and I say, hey man, I don't think you're saved. I don't think you're regenerate. He'll say, what do you mean you don't think I'm regenerate? I was regenerate at my infant baptism. My faith is irrelevant. Our hope is in the grace and promises of God, not our ability to believe hard enough. You see, it's a different way of thinking about salvation than we as Protestants typically do. But that idea becomes very popular in the Middle Ages. The only thing that matters in the Middle Ages well, that's, that's an overstatement. Something that is very important in the Middle Ages is simply sacraments. You're saved because of your infant sprinkling baptism. You partake of communion. That gives you grace. You do penance. You do confession. You do these kind of things, and that gives you grace. Whether you know the stuff, whether you walk in holiness, whether you do those kind of things are somewhat irrelevant. It's just based upon these seven different sacraments that the church has. That idea is very, very popular in the Middle Ages. When we ever teach on church history and the future for theological equipping, we'll spend more time on that. Okay. Some things to know about heaven and hell in the Reformation. This is where we as Protestants kind of uh, have our heritage, so let's talk about a few things here. First, they continue to affirm the things already affirmed in the medieval church, okay? Notice that the ideas of judgment, eternal blessedness, condemnation, uh, resurrection, etc., are held pretty much universally throughout church history. Number two, they got rid of much of the art in the churches that they believed to be idolatrous, okay? Council of Nicaea is a great thing, okay? 325. The second Council of Nicaea is where the church affirms the use of statues and icons. If you're Catholic, you can have statues that are 3D. If you're Greek Orthodox, you can have icons, which are 2D, okay? That way you're not committing idolatry because it's 2D, it's flat. And, uh, and so the church says that those are okay. The reformers look at the scripture and they say, let me make sure I understand what's happening here. You're bowing down to a statue of Mary. You're lighting candles for an image of St. Anthony. That's actual idolatry. That's actual idolatry. So what the reformers are going to do is they're going to get rid of using things like, uh, like idols, statues, these kind of things. You'll notice here at Parkway we don't have any statues of Moses or something like that because we're Protestant. And so the reformers are very uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. You even get movements in Protestantism, what is called the iconoclast controversy, where a bunch of fired up young Lutherans break into churches and start breaking all their stuff. That's the ministry I'm called to, okay? That's the ministry I'm called to, uh, but you see that. Number three. The reformers would continue to hold that hell is literal, the torment of it is literal, but they said that you're free to interpret the symbols a little bit differently, okay? So Calvin stated, for example, that the pain of punishment in hell is literal, but that there doesn't have to literally be fire for it to be true. Elsewhere, the Bible says there is darkness in hell. How can you have both darkness and fire, which produces light? So the torture of hell is literal, although the Bible can use figurative imagery if need be. For example, he says, as by such details, we should be enabled in some degree to conceive the lot of the wicked. So we ought especially to fix our thoughts upon this, how wretched it is to be cut off from all loving fellowship with God. 
The worst part of hell is not the physical torment, although that's awful. The worst part of hell is everything that has ever brought you joy or has been good, which comes from God, is no longer there, okay? That's the, God is the source of all good and all joy in all life. Every good gift you have even comes from him. Even the things you take and make idols, he is the one who gives originally a good gift, okay? The worst part of hell is that all the good is gone, okay? All the good is gone. As it's been said, if you're a Christian, this life is as close as you'll get to hell, amen. The bad things in this life is as close as you'll get to hell. If you're not a Christian, this life is as close as you get to heaven. The good things in this life is as close as you get to heaven. Number four, now I like this one. They reemphasize that your life and vocation in this life is important. The world is not just something you ignore and pass through to get to the next one. In the Middle Ages, there was kind of this idea. If you were doing something spiritual, you were a priest or you were a bishop or you were a missionary or something like that, your life had value because you're doing spiritual stuff. But if you're a farmer, you're a businessman, yuck. That's just the, the gross laity, right? And that your job didn't matter. Your, your job was really just to get through this life without being damned so you could get to heaven, okay? The reformers are gonna say that idea is completely wrong. God made Adam and Eve to garden. That's the original vocation of mankind, okay? How does a squirrel glorify God? We, we agree, squirrel, everything God made, he's made for his glory. Do we agree with that? Okay, so squirrels glorify God. How does a squirrel glorify God? By reading its little squirrel Bible? By little squirrel prayers? Please help me remember where I've stashed those acorns, whatever it is, right? A squirrel glorifies God by just being a squirrel, okay? God has designed it to run around and to run up trees and all these kind of things, and that glorifies God. God has designed humanity to work, so all of our lives and vocations are worship. My job is not more honoring to God than your job. You can swing a hammer for God's glory just like you read the Bible for God's glory, okay? You can make a business deal with somebody assuming that you're being honest for God's glory just like somebody praying or whatever for God's glory. There is no separation between what's spiritual and what's secular. Everything belongs to Christ that's good. Now, I don't have time to get into this. I really wanna encourage you in this. This gives your life meaning. This means that you're not just honoring God for the one hour that you're in church or here at Parkway when you come to this class and then church like the three or four hours that you're here, whatever. You're not just honoring God when you come to church. You're honoring God when you send an email that's gracious. You're honoring God when you pay your taxes. You're honoring God when you take your kids to the park. See, when you realize that, you realize now my entire life is worship, not just when I'm doing something that feels spiritual, okay? Focus on that, it'll change your life. Let me give you two great quotes from Martin Luther. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, or we would say secular, okay? That's what he means by temporals, as they call them, except that of office and work. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. I love that. You're a priest and you're a bishop if you're a Christian, regardless of your job. And everyone, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other. That, in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. He also says, in the light of this view of the matter, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I am cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? My master and mistress have. What has uh, given them authority over me? God has. Very well then. Look at this next part. It must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven, and that God must be pleased with my service. How could I not possibly be more blessed? Why, my service is equal to cooking for the God of heaven. Even when you are cleaning the toilet, there is a way to do so with a worshipful heart to the glory of God where you do a good job and even the most degrading menial task can be done in a worshipful way. That's a powerful message, okay? That is a super powerful message. And so you should be encouraged, uh, encouraged in these things. Martin Luther even talks about how you can be a Christian hangman. You can be an executioner for God's glory. Uh, and so uh, maybe some of you are called to that ministry. Number five, they got rid of the idea of purgatory, okay? In Roman Catholic thinking, because you're not fully justified by God's declaration of you, before you can go to heaven, you've got to go be purged in purgatory, okay? In purgatory, you've got to go have those remaining defilements burned off. Let's say you get in a car wreck and you say a curse word right before you die. Well, that has to be atoned for somehow. And so you've got to go to purgatory and let that burn off for a thousand years or whatever before you can uh, go to heaven. The reformers get rid of purgatory. That's not a biblical idea. Number six, 
The reformers taught that your works evidenced whether you were really saved, but the actual justification was a gift from God by grace through faith alone. Okay, we already talked about that, so I won't spend time on it. The idea, again, is simply this. God saves you by faith alone in Christ alone, okay? And then you naturally do good deeds because you have a changed heart. Your debt's been forgiven, so you walk in joy. It's not the other way around. It's not that I clean myself up or do these good deeds and then God saves me. You have to keep those things in order. God loves me, therefore I walk in righteousness. Not, I walk in righteousness so God will love me. And the reformers continued, or the reformers are going to strongly emphasize that. That's not emphasized in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the idea was, uh, the phrase is, faciende quod in se es Deus non denigrat gratiam, which means God does not deny grace to the one who does what is in him. In the Middle Ages, the idea was, if you do your best, then God will give you grace. Who does God give grace to? Those who try. The reformers will say that is absolutely wrong. God gives grace to those running from God. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, okay? God gives grace to those who are unrighteous. Abraham believes God and his faith is counted as righteousness even though he is unrighteous. And so the uh, reformers will emphasize that. Now, lastly, some things to know about heaven and hell in the modern era, okay? Now, when we talk about church history, there are four major periods of church history. There's the early church, which is basically... The death of Christ through uh, about 500-ish A.D. There's the Middle Ages, which are about 500 to 1500 A.D. There's the Reformation, which is about 1500 to 1750 or so. And then there's the modern church, 1750 and beyond. Of all the periods of church history, the one I hate the most is the modern church. It's where everything goes astray, okay? I think Christ should have come back in like 1799. I think that would have been, uh, that would have been great. Uh, but uh, apparently God knows better than me. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the modern era. Some things to know about heaven and hell in the modern era. There is a villain. He is one of the most influential figures in church history, but for being bad. He's infamous, not famous. And his name is Friedrich Daniel Ernst Schleiermacher. Isn't that a great name? You got to watch out for Germans, okay? There's only a few good Germans that have ever come out of Germany. Okay, let's name who those are. Luther, Mozart, Bach, Leibniz, Christoph Waltz, the actor. Um, That's about it. All the rest of them, whether it's Hegel or Heidegger or Kant or Hitler or whoever, they're all bad, okay? They're all bad. Uh, And so this is one of those bad Germans, F.D.E. Schleiermacher. He is gonna be the one who does this. For all of church history, Christianity was based on doctrine. It's Schleiermacher who's going to be the first one to move it to feeling and experience. Much of what you see in the evangelical church today comes from Schleiermacher. They don't know his name, but the focus for Schleiermacher is not on doctrine. God is a trinity. Jesus has died for us. We need mercy, etc. The focus for Schleiermacher becomes this feeling of dependence upon the generic divine, okay? In his systematic theology, the Christian faith, he puts the trinity in the back of the book as an index, Okay, just to let you kind of know where he's at there. But he is going to be one who popularized dismissing the idea of judgment and eternal condemnation in hell. That's going to be Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher's a bad guy. Boo, Schleiermacher. Okay? He's smart. I'm sure he would have been a lot of fun at a party or something like that. But he, his doctrine is bad because he makes that shift. He moves Christianity from what is objective to what is subjective. Okay? Everybody looking for God speaking only in their heart, everybody feeling condemned and therefore thinking they're condemned despite what the Bible says, all that kind of stuff, whether you know it or not, goes back to Schleiermacher. Had you been a Christian in the Middle Ages and you said to somebody, I do love Jesus, but I don't feel saved, they would say, I don't care how you feel, the Bible says you're saved. After Schleiermacher, we do this, "Mm, unless you have this assurance, unless you never struggle, maybe you're not really saved kind of thing. So Schleiermacher influences conservatives and liberals alike. You also got several false teachings in the modern era uh, that are related to heaven and hell, okay? You got this idea, universalism, the idea that everyone would be saved. That's what universalism is. People are universally saved. That uh, is called universalism. Notice, you had people in church that held that, like Origen, but the church later condemned his view. They said it was not Christian. Well, today, that's a very popular idea. God is a God of love, so nobody goes to hell, okay? Nobody goes to hell. There's just universalism. God saves everyone. You got a related view to that, what is called pluralism. What is the difference between universalism and pluralism? Anybody just know? You've got it there in your notes, but see if you can summarize it. What is it? 
The coexist bumper sticker is a great example of pluralism. So universalism is everyone will be saved. Pluralism is that there are different paths to God. There are different ways to be saved. So it's not as strong. Universalism's worse, if you want to say it that way. It's just everybody's saved, period. Some views even say the devil. Uh, But in pluralism, the idea is that you can still be saved as long as you're sincere in your faith, right? As long as you're a sincere Buddhist or a sincere Muslim or something, because you're following the light that's in you. You're, you're actually following Christ. You just don't know anything explicitly about him. That's the idea of pluralism. You got the invention of annihilationism, that the damned will eventually be taken out of existence, and then a related view to that, what's called conditional immortality. What is that? That's just a, it's a sub-branch of annihilationism. It's this idea. When you come to Christ, he grants you eternal life. Humans are not inherently immortal, which, by the way, is true. Only God possesses immortality. Uh, humans are not naturally immortal. We're creatures. When we come to Christ, he grants us to live forever. But if you don't know Christ, because you're not immortal, when you die, that's it. That's just the end of the story for you. You're like a, a cow or something that just ceases to be. Richard Bauckham, who is a New Testament scholar, says, until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians taught the reality of eternal torment and hell. Eternal punishment was firmly asserted in official creeds and confessions of the churches. It must have seemed as indispensable a part of universal Christian belief as the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Since 1800, again, everything bad comes in 1800, You get the invention of American cults. You get the second great awakening opposed to the first great awakening. You get all this legalism and all these kind of things. Again, I think Jesus should have come back in 1799. Since 1800, this situation has entirely changed and no traditional Christian doctrine has been so widely abandoned as that of eternal punishment. When you look at church history and churches start to drift liberal, I don't mean politically liberal, I mean theologically liberal, which is where you start denying the supernaturalness of the Bible, you start denying these traditional doctrines that we've held, what is always, without exception, the very first doctrine to go? What do you think it is? No, churches that drift don't start by denying the Trinity, not historically. They start by, they, somebody said it, they start by denying hell, that's the first thing to go. Take a normal Christian who loves Christ, and let them start drifting. And the first thing they'll get rid of is not things that uh, don't scare them, like the Trinity. It'll be hell. You know, the second thing to go historically is belief in angels, right? And spiritual beings like that. So as people start to drift, the first thing to go is hell because that's the thing we most don't want to be true. The next thing to go is angels because that's weird, right? You don't want to think there's some angel helping you not get in a car wreck or something like that. And so that goes. And then the other dominoes start to fall. But that is the view of uh, heaven and hell throughout church history. Again, what church history does is it helps us question our assumptions. It helps us question our presuppositions. Not everything in church history is right. There have always been true believers. Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. But there are times in church history where there are more or less true believers. The church is more or less pure. Are there saved people in the Middle Ages in the Catholic Church? Yes. I think guys like Thomas Aquinas are super saved even though he's off on stuff, okay? At the Reformation, I think there's more people saved because I think doctrine is getting purer at that point, et cetera. But, uh, but you need to know that uh, uh, this is kind of just an overview of what other Christians have thought about heaven and hell. Jeff, the heaven to my hell, will you please uh, come up here? And we can have a few, uh, have a few questions answered. Yeah, first uh, observation. Most of the Germans that he mentioned are actually Austrians. So, uh, was... Schwarzenegger? <laughs> wait, 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 let me also just mention that those are not separate through most of world history, right? Austria comes later, but that's fine. There it goes. Totally redeemed yourself. It's totally fine. redeemed yourself. Uh, Schwarzenegger, he's Austrian. We yeah. throw him in there somewhere. It's okay. true. Okay. Uh, we, we didn't have a whole lot of questions. I'll get to them, but I wanted to share an interesting anecdote first. If you flip back to the, the, the painting which was uh, pretty cool. So that's the, uh, the Last Judgment. Anyone know where that is, where that painting is? Yeah, it's in the Sistine Chapel. So we know it uh, from the ceiling, right? So the picture of uh, God and man kind of touching fingers. And, uh, and so that's actually on the altar wall. And, uh, and so whenever Michelangelo, so Michelangelo who painted the, the ceiling was actually commissioned to also paint this. And whenever he's painting it, it's taking him a while. And, uh, and a guy uh, goes in and he's the, like the papal master of ceremonies. And, uh, and he goes in there and he thinks this is totally, totally inappropriate. There's all these people and they're not wearing clothes. This is inappropriate in church. And, uh, and he begins to complain to the Pope. And so what Michelangelo does, if you look in the bottom right corner, he draws that guy's face in the underworld. And, uh, and so that guy is forever uh, ingrained, and that's what he is most known for, Biagio de Cicena. And uh, so he complains to the Pope, and, uh, and the Pope says, well, my jurisdiction doesn't extend to hell, so it's going to have to stay. 
<laughs> that was the response. So anyway, that's just an interesting historical uh, anecdote. A few questions. So if you, uh, if you complain whenever Zach uh, preaches, he's going to embed you into a sermon somehow. You'll be a, an example. Uh, questions. Number one, Samuel was sleeping after uh, death when Saul disturbed him while the poor man was sitting in Abraham's bosom where the rich man saw him. Those accounts seem contradictory. Your, uh, your thoughts. So uh, I'll give a, a couple of opening thoughts and then turn it over to, to Zach. So one of the things to bear in mind is uh, in the Samuel account, you have uh, a, a few things happening there. You have Saul, who's not a, a godly, righteous man, and he is recounting what he is seeing from this uh, necromancer, this, this person who's calling up the dead. And so we don't want to take all of the details there and think that necessarily those apply uh, on a one-to-one relationship with what we see. One of the things we've talked about before is that the New Testament is clearer on certain issues than the Old Testament. God progressively reveals something. Uh, in addition to that, we need to re- uh, remember that whenever we get to the story of Abraham's bosom in the New Testament, that's in a parable. There are certain aspects of parable that, that are meant to be related to reality, and there are certain aspects that are just details that are added in order to make it more uh, kind of understandable for us. And so there's a parable where um, God is presented as this person who is in bed trying to go to sleep, and someone's beating on the door, beating on the door, and, and, uh, and this person is just completely annoyed. They are completely frustrated. They're angry. And, uh, and so Jesus uses this image to show that we should also beat on the door in regards to our prayer. Now, do we apply that and say God is very annoyed at us? God is very frustrated at us. God is bothered by our incessant asking of a request for him. No, it's the exact opposite is true. And so we need to remember there are aspects of a parable that don't relate to reality. They're just simply given as details in order to make it more vibrant and real for us. And so there's no actual contradiction here. What we need to do is we need to take the statements that the Bible does make that are explicit about the eternal state, about the intermediate state, and so forth. And then we read that back upon the narratives, not allow the narratives to inform our theology in that way. More do you want to? Yeah, so uh, what Jeff and I have begun doing is we keep a list of real weird biblical texts and uh, a folder called Tough Text. And our hope is eventually to be able to even have maybe like a little mini-series, not like on TV, but like in sermons, uh, where we go over just tough texts, like exegetically. And so that's one of those texts that's in there, the uh, conjuring up of Samuel by Saul. I think the short answer to the question is whatever's going on with Samuel and Saul, I think is an exception, not the rule. The rule is you die, you rest with Christ, or you go to some bad place, hell, whatever, why you wait for judgment, okay? That's the, that's the normal pattern. I think what's going on is an exception is being made in that passage as a word of condemnation against Saul. I think that uh, Saul is going to a witch, meaning someone who practices witchcraft, not somebody who rides a broom. Uh, he's going to somebody that practices witchcraft, which he's not supposed to do. She's doing witchcraft. So it could either be a demon that surprises them Or it could be God actually allowing Samuel to condemn, in a sense, Saul, but that would be a unique thing. That would be an exception, not the rule. That's kind of like saying, well, wait a second, when we die, do we wait judgment or does God rapture us up into the clouds on a chariot like he does other figures in the Old Testament? Well, those are exceptions. Those are not the rule. I think the same thing is true with Samuel. Next question. Why would God create people that he has not elected and thus that he will uh, condemn? You want to give some thoughts on that? Sure. Okay, so <clears throat> at the end of the day, let me, say it, let me say it as strongly as I can. God could have made a world where he did not allow mankind to fall and saved everyone. He could have done that. Even without violating free will, if, you, if you're more of an Arminian, God could have chosen someone other than Adam and Eve who he knew wouldn't have eaten from, have eaten, <laughs> wouldn't have eaten from the tree, Okay. God could have not created the devil. At least you have to say he knows that the devil's going to fall, so just not create him to begin with, and everyone could have been saved, okay? God could have done that. Why did God not do it then? Why did God not do it? At the end of the day, I think we have to say this. God decided that it would be more glorious for him, that he would get more glory by allowing mankind to fall and by redeeming us instead of just leaving us redeemed, okay? That God decided that he would get more glory by allowing man to fall and redeeming us instead of just leaving us redeemed. You say in this way, God gets glory both for his judgment against sin and for the mercy that he shows to those who he has elected. 
okay? I don't know why. You can't push the question further back than that. You can't say, why does God get more glory that way? We don't know. Eventually, the bucks is going to stop with God if he is that standard. But we have to say at the end of the day, God decided he would get more glory by having people praise him in their damnation as people praise him in their salvation than instead of just saving everybody. It's one of the hardest things to believe. At the end of the day, we have to say, God's ways are higher than ours. The pot shall not say to to the potter, why did you make me thus? The buck stops there. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. It can't go back further than God's own purposes and design. But do you want to add some extra? Yeah, I mean, I I would just say, I think this is the hardest question in all of Christianity. And so if you wrestle with this question, you're not alone. Everybody wrestles with this question if you've actually thought about the question. Uh, And so uh, if you weren't here... Uh, or if you just don't uh, remember, I would encourage you, go back. We preached through the book of Romans uh, last year. And, uh, and so in Romans chapter 9, towards the end, in verses 20 through 24-ish, uh, Paul addresses this particular question. He doesn't fully answer it, uh, but he does give us some helpful thoughts. And so I'd encourage you to, uh, to go back and listen to that audio, because we do, uh, in, uh, in the context of that sermon, try to at least wrestle with uh, some of those implications. So again, Romans 9, 20-ish through 24. Uh, and if you find that on, uh, audio online, you can listen to that. Next one, how do you reconcile eternal life and uh, eternal joy with God? with the reality that loved ones are in hell. How in the world can we experience eternal joy and there's no sadness, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, even though people that we love are in eternal conscious torment? Thoughts? I mean, I haven't, it's a really hard answer. I'm gonna, I think it's true, so I'm gonna tell you. I've never said this. What I'm about to say, I've never said publicly in any church setting, okay? So what's, what, is, what is he gonna say? Uh, <laughs> I think what happens is you, you, you and your mind are so redeemed that you realize condemnation is what's deserved and you glorify God for doing what's right. Right now, you couldn't possibly think about that. You can't think, I couldn't glorify God because somebody I, I knew was condemned. That's awful. Well, that's only because you're thinking just, you're thinking sinfully. You're thinking what's most important is how you feel in your relationship. You're not saying if God is what's most important and his glory is what's most important, then that means that there are those who you love who for eternity will not cause you sorrow that they're being judged because they should be judged and you will rightly give God glory for that. That's what I think has happened. Now, I do know this. Here's what we do know biblically explicitly. There is no more sadness, no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain. Some have said you won't know about, you know, the torment of loved ones or something like that. That's a possible option. But I think, uh, I think that you will so see things the way God sees them that uh, you will see that, that what God is doing is actually right. God is not being mean or bad by judging sinners. God is doing what's right, even if we love the sinners. But that's a really hard thing. So, Jeff, if you want to fire me now, <laughs> uh, you can go ahead and, and do that. Uh, no, I, I think recognizing that every single suspicion and every single doubt that you have about God and God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy and God's justice and so forth will be eradicated in that moment. And, uh, and so think of the difference between uh, if someone does you some sort of a harm and, uh, or you see someone doing something and you think what they did is really bad and then you hear the justification for it and you realize, no, what they did is actually really good. And, uh, and so just a, uh, this is an example that came to the top of my mind. It's not the best example uh, at all, but, um, because it's, it's much more complex than this, but, uh, let's say it's some sort of war warfare. So you look at world war two and you think of the death of millions and millions of people. And if you just look at the deaths of millions and millions of people, you think it's a really bad thing. But then whenever you look at it from the perspective of the allies, that's actually a really good thing. So again, that's not the greatest example whatsoever, but it's, uh, it is helpful to recognize whenever you have that change of perspective, what seems to be a really bad thing all of a sudden becomes a really good thing. And I think that's what happens in the eternal state. Your heart, your mind, your will, your affections and so forth are so transformed that you, uh, that you glorify God in recognizing that he's just and kind and that he's overwhelmingly gracious to you because you deserve that as well. Um, last question. Do you need to, this is kind of uh, in relation to the Luther quotes about uh, going about your work as a, uh, a cobbler or a baker or whatever it is. Uh, do you need to think glorifying uh, thoughts? Like, do you need to actually explicitly think glorifying thoughts or explicitly have this sort of worshipful heart kind of whistling while you work while doing daily tasks? What if I don't feel like I'm glorifying God because I'm busy doing stuff? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the short answer. You don't have to be consciously thinking of God while you're doing your task for it to glorify God. If I'm getting heart surgery, I don't want the surgeon thinking about God. I want him thinking about fixing my heart. That's the way to most glorify God, okay? So the way that you glorify God is by doing a good job, not to exalt you, but to exalt him. Christians, we should be the best at what we do. We should be the best artists and the best doctors and the best businessmen, the best philosophers. I want you to work out hard, not because you're vain, but because you're stewarding your body because you love God. I want you to make money, not because you're vain and you need a third beach house, but so you can give to the church and support missions. I want you to, so you don't have to consciously be thinking of God in the moment. The way that you glorify God, I think you start your day with a prayer. God, help me work as if I'm working unto you. And then you do a good job and God is just naturally glorified. So Luther's got a great quote where he says, what does it mean to make shoes as a cobbler to the glory of God? It means that you make a decent shoe and sell it at a fair price. That's what he says. So, that's good. Want to pray? Yes. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we confess that there are parts of it that are difficult and uh, just pray that you would help us see things clearer. The problem is never with the Bible. The problem is always with us and so we just need grace. I think back to, uh, I think it's Tim Keller's quote that if we knew everything that you knew, we would answer uh, our prayers exactly like you do. And so we just confess that we don't think like you. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. We're broken. We're sinful. We're, uh, we're limited. We're just creatures. You made us out of the dirt. We just confess that you are great and we are not. You are unlike us. You are eternal. You are God. We're just humans. We're created. We're temporary. We're made of dirt. We get sick and we trip over our own feet and these kind of things. Would you help us have a greater majesty of who you are? Would you help us see the greater infinite separation between uh, who you are and who we are? And so uh, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've relationally brought us close in Christ. Uh, Would you help us as we wrestle through these difficult doctrines? It's in Christ's name. Amen.